Whitehead here again to have another conversation with you about some of the stories that matter. Folks, we need to talk about the future of democracy, the state of black America, what is happening with the wage pay gap, and what we should be doing with our money at this moment. The best person to sit down with and one of my personal sheroes is Dr. Julianne Malvo an economist, an author, a social and political commentator, a businesswoman. She served as the 15th president of Bennett College in Greensboro, North Carolina. Her weekly columns appear in numerous newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times, the Charlotte Observer, the San Francisco Examiner, and the San Francisco Sun Reporter. She was appointed dean of the New College of Ethnic Studies at California State University in Los Angeles. Dr. Malvo, thank you for joining us. Well, it's good to be with you, Dr. K. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, just so the people understand why I am smiling in the studio, coming along as a young black woman attending Lincoln University in Pennsylvania under Dr. Niara Sadakasa, the first black woman to helm the head of our university. Uh, She invited Dr. Julianne Malvo, and we all sat on the front row as Deltas, newly appointed (laughs) Deltas, to make all kind of noises because we were so excited because you planted but big footsteps for us to follow. And so I've mm. always wanted to just thank you for being a light for me to shine my path. So thank you for that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, that's, this is a full circle moment because Niara, Dr. Sudarkasa, was to me what you say I was to you. She was <laughs> um, just, you know, I met her when I was um, a, a baby Delta, and um, she always had this influence, and she was an Africanist, of course, mm-hmm. which I am as well. So uh, this kente I have on actually was given to a lady from Kwame Nkrumah, oh, wow. and she blessed me with it uh, when she saw me wear some fake kente on TV. <laughs> and she, she tracked me down, and she said, I need to send you some real kente. And then when I went, went to Ghana years later, she, I called her, and I said, I'm going to go to Banwari. Where would you suggest I go to get kente? So she exactly... She told me how many steps, they, you know, they were in the streets. She said, you go three stalls and then mm-hmm. turn. And um, <laughs> I got, so I got uh, some really great kenti from those brothers there. But uh, Niara was just, a, she, a wonderful lady. We, we lost her, and I'm sorry that we lost her, but she has such a legacy in her son, who has her same smile, Michael, <laughs> and her, uh, well, her, well, her grandchildren. But her, her oldest granddaughter was very special to her as well. Thank you for sharing that. I was a baby Delta when I saw you as well. So complete full circle. I want to talk with you about a number of issues today um, because we're trying to figure out as we go forward coming maybe through COVID, looking Mm -hmm. at the state of the black community and how we were disproportionately impacted during COVID, where we're talking about the ways in which it disproportionately impacted black women. Can you talk about the state of black America with your long eye of history? We've been better off and we've been worse off. That's what, and we can, we, we can never really see the black community has become much more diverse by class. There are more of us who are middle class, but also more who are poor. Uh, so, I mean, how does homie from the hood talk to Dr. K or Dr. J or so, you know, so, I mean, I talk to everybody, so it doesn't matter. But by that, I'm saying we have less and less in common. So you will find, and give you an example, California's Prop 209, which uh, passed maybe 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. Working class black people didn't care about Prop 209. It was the anti-affirmative action mm-hmm. legislation. Why did they care? There was nothing in it for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to get any jobs from affirmative action. So they didn't come out for that. 
And um, so we, we see this gap in, in the black community, which is a policy gap as well, is what do we go on the line for? I'm very disappointed that uh, Brother Biden, I like, when I want something, I call him Brother Biden. When I don't want nothing, I call him out of his name. Um, but that Brother Biden has backed off of the community college. That's something that could have basically affected positively a lot of black folks, uh, the free community college. But he's backed off of that uh, because, of course, Joe Manchin, who thinks he's the president and God and uh, everything else combined, is making demands and everybody seems to want to dance to his tune. Um but I, I think the state is precarious. We, we look at the 20% of black folks still live in poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, even this after we've seen economic expansion, we've seen all this stuff, uh, we still live in poverty. We're disproportionately affected by inflation. We know inflation is a big thing that people are talking about now. Black women are at the bottom of the economic totem pole, which is very, very We're You know, we are at the top of political effectiveness. Right. If you've seen black women in a political fight, you know that those black women are going to win. Right. You talk about a Natasha, Latasha Brown or Melanie Campbell. Right. You call the role of these sisters who have just a Barbara Arnwine. They've been doing it politically, right. and they usually win or at least make an impact. Uh, Raphael Warnock, our senator from Georgia, wouldn't be there were it not for black women, right. and just so many others. Um, Cori Bush, the new congresswoman from St. Louis, mm-hmm. black women. Uh, just call the role. But how do we have all that political power? and so little economic power. And that's really what, what the uh, conundrum is, is that the people we elect don't support us. So we still have a pay gap, uh, and it's a significant pay gap. But not only that, I mean, we've had black women dropping out of the labor market. Right. We have, um, if, if we look at our, our sorority as an example, I think that most sorors, or at least half of sorors over 60 would be teachers. Right. But we have teacher shortages. And we have teacher problems. And in some of the southern states, um, with the standardized testing for teachers, we have teachers who are being marginalized. And this this is a staple employment for black women. In addition, which we can talk about later, because this is one of my rabbit holes, but this whole conversation (laughs) about critical race theory. Right. I was going to want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, because I'm the dean of a college of ethnic studies, where, you know, we see the splashback in terms of people's resistance to anything but standard white people history. And I call it white people history. It's not black history. Right. It's, not, it's not American history. It's white people history. Not even white people, white people. Because it's... <laughs> but in any case, the black community is, in, is... Parts of the black community are very endangered, especially those who are poor, those who don't have access to education, those who... Uh, in Los Angeles, I'll give you an example, there are 40,000 homeless people. The black population in L.A. might be around 10%. It's been higher, but it's been dwindling. 40% of the homeless are black. So disproportionate, any social ill, it visits us disproportionately. And some of our leaders are these blue dog Democrats and others who basically don't care. Or they want to go, I mean, they live in the mansion camp. They won't come out and say so. But they're worried about deficits. But deficits are investments. Right. If you invest in education, you will produce somebody who's going to pay taxes, you know, for the next 40 years. If you don't, you get someone who might be a tax drain for the next 40 years because if they commit the right crime or the wrong one, you know, that's life in prison. Well, let's pull out some of the things you talked about because you have laid out for us really our platform for discussion today. So I want to start with just talking about this wage pay gap for black women. 
I know when we talk about who makes a dollar on a dollar. Mm -hmm. White men is the standard. And mm -hmm. Asian American men are making a dollar and 25 cents on a dollar. That it takes black women until August of the following year. Mm -hmm. It takes Latinx women until September and indigenous women around November. So yes. this wage pay gap, which existed when I was in college, is not getting any smaller, even though black women have more political effectiveness and we're getting more college degrees. So what can be done to close that? First of all, we have to diligently uh, ensure that the laws are being uh, adhered to. I mean, there are there Equal Pay Act, you know, but if you don't know what people make, right. you won't know what they pay. That's why union jobs are so important. That's why unions are so important. If a black woman is in a union doing the same work as a black woman who is not, the sister in the union is making between 25 and 35 percent more. So unions basically help right. standardize pay. Um, Government jobs are also important for that reason. Anytime you can look up somebody's pay, right. you can tell what kind of pay discrimination there is. But most, many employers actually have you signed something when you come to work that say you won't discuss your pay with your coworkers, which means you know, we're sitting next to each other making, doing the same work. I'm making 20 grand more than you. You'll never know. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell you. Right. <laughs> you <Right>. know, <laughs> um, and and that, that that's discrimination. I mean, there are other reasons. You know, maybe I've been on the job longer. But there, the basis really is discrimination. We have to make sure that the Equal Pay Act is followed. Uh, people have to be emboldened to ask the questions about pay and to sue if necessary. Um, because a lot of people don't want to sue. I mean, we, we punish whistleblowers so effectively that people, who people wants to be? Afraid. They're yeah, afraid people, to be out front. And when people have, I mean, I think about, when we think about sexual harassment, um, I'm trying to think of the woman's name, it's, the, it's leaving me, but it's a black woman who did the first sexual, yes, her, um, Michelle Vinson yes. is her name. And Michelle Vinson, actually, unfortunately, her harasser was a black man. Mm -hmm. But over a period of years, he uh, forced sex on him, on her more than 50 times. Mm -hmm. And um, National Women's Law Center took the case, and she, she prevailed. And that was the first time we saw sexual harassment go onto the books. But do you know how long, it, it, that case took, wound through the courts over a decade. And what she lost as a result of that. Yes. Some people said, I, I don't have that to lose. Time, money, my reputation, I don't have it to lose. Exactly. So that, that um, so, but, but we should figure out ways to support people who are willing to do lawsuits. Because when they're doing that, they're not doing it just for them, they're doing it for us as well. So now the other question I want to ask you, uh, something you mentioned before we came on the air. You talked about how with Barack Obama, and you made a wonderful joke. You're like, he has as much chance of being president, much opportunity as anyone, but he probably shouldn't have been because of his ability to move and navigate through Congress. He didn't have that yeah. as a junior senator. Can you talk about what we lost with Barack Obama as president? And have we gained back that ground? Well, you know, I wrote a book in 2016 called Are We Better Off? Yes. Race, Obama, and Public Policy. And, of course, the, the, the haterators slammed me for it, and th that's fine. I get energy off that. But um, we were not better off because of it, and we lost opportunity. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the greatest contribution that Obama made, frankly, was image. It was style. It was black men having their chest pu puffed up and poked out. Mm -hmm. I, I love the picture of the little boy uh, touching his hair. Yes. Um, and so, yes. But well, all imagery, right? All so, images. You can't eat that. You can't put on no, a sandwich. you cannot. You can't but, get a job with that. No. no. So I think that there was a lot of... I, I, he did more for other people than he did for black people. Same-sex marriage, uh, which is a good thing. Right. 
Um, and that was a big issue with him. It was a big. He, he had to, he had to move on that. Yes. He wasn't there, he and was, he did not give up on moving to make sure that happened. Exactly. Yes. And he bathed the White House in the bright colors um, at a point in time. DACA was uh, basically um, the Dreamers Act was for the Latinx community, and again that was very important as well. Um, but um, where 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 are we? Uh, women, Lily Ledbetter Act. Now, yes. of course, the black women that helped with that got got something from that as well because that's pay you know, right. pay equity legislation. But in terms of the black community writ large, some of us wanted. I'm a part of a group called NARC, the National African American Reparations Commission. We've been around since like 19, not 19, 2015. Um, and we had hoped that, uh, well, don't even, it's even, but we had hoped that President Obama would do something about reparations. We knew that he couldn't do an executive order, but we hoped that he would at least establish a federal commission to look into reparations. He wasn't going to do that. Matter, well, I'll tell you a funny story, which is true. Uh, 2004, uh, Democratic Convention. So I was there uh, covering, actually, for Willie Gary when he had the Black News oh, Channel. Yes. And um, I had a great time doing it as well. Uh, but anyway, I was able to snag an interview with uh, President, Obama, uh, then Senator Obama, um, in my hotel suite. A uh, sister friend was there, and um, even though I was working, she wouldn't leave. She goes, "Oh, it's Obama." <laughs> uh, but we were his his people are very efficient. They told me I had fifteen minutes. Well, you know, if you get with black people of a certain age, and we all know each other, we start doing a "Who do you know?" number. So you know, Ogletree was one of his professors, a friend of mine. Um, so we go. So connections. You were pulling yeah, we, these, all we, the connections. So so then you know his little guy is like. <clears throat> so he he waved him off. He's like, oh no, I'm enjoying this. So we chatted and we're chatting away. I think we're about twenty twenty five minutes in. When I say, well now you know you studied with uh, Ogletree and of course Derek Bell was uh, he was a dear friend also. And I said, so what do you think about reparations? <laughs> Did the interview end? <laughs> yeah. He said, turn that really? camera off. He said, turn that really? camera off. Yes. That's what he said. He said, turn that camera off. And I had to calm everybody down and then say, okay, can we just do like a closing thing? I won't say anything else right. about reparations. So didn't that, when the camera went off, did he speak about where no, he stood he said, with I'm, that? No, he said, I don't want to talk about that. Okay, so we, we didn't get it under Barack Obama. We definitely were not going to get it under Donald Trump. But there was a feeling, or at least there was an enthusiasm around the idea that maybe under President Joe Biden, who said he was in support of reparations, that we would see more movement with that. Well, and we, we have didn't. seen some movement, mm -hmm. but not enough. Mm -hmm. We've seen, uh, you know, John Conyers, of course, was the first to introduce uh, H.R. 40. Yes. And he introduced it in 1989. 1989. Yeah. And as he was leaving Congress, he asked Sheila Jackson Lee to take over. And that's a good move because Sheila, if, if you want a tenacious fighter, that would be Sheila Jackson Lee. So she's pushed. H.R. 40 now has uh, more than 175 co-sponsors in Congress. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not enough, but that's a lot. It's more than we've ever had. Right. In the past, you'd have 20. In the past, a whole Congressional Black Caucus wouldn't co-sponsor the legislation. So now we have the legislation. It's moving. Uh, Speaker Pelosi says that she hopes for a vote on it. But you can vote on everything you want. If you don't have the Senate, it's just going and to... And I cannot... First of all, I can't imagine Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema At all. Doing it, At you all. know. And then you have uh, all those Republicans. So it's, it's you know, it, at least we see movement. We will have had a House p bill 
And there is a companion Senate bill that uh, Cory Booker has introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that we can't get the votes. But, we, ha- you know, we have to just keep plugging away. There's a Colin Powell quote um, that I always get wrong, but he talks about how optimism, yeah. you know. The, yes. So we, we can't give up. I mean, we can get weary, we can be tired, but we can't give up. Because when we give up, we give in. And, you know, we can't give in. When we give in, we cease to exist. So but what will reparations look like? Now, I, I often talk on this show, and I'm, I'm clear, I'm like, you know what, run me my change. Like, write me my check for reparations. And then we talk a lot about community reparations. Yes. Is it about building up our communities or giving individual both. families checks? It's about, about both. That. So folks who are listening, if you go on to IBW21.org, IBW21.org, there is a tab that says reparations. NARC is a project of IBW, the Institute for the Black World. Uh, we have a 10-point plan that talks about what reparations would look like. It goes everything from individual payments mm-hmm. to um, community repair. We talk about a reparations finance authority that will try to build back some of our financial uh, backbone. Uh, health, especially mental health, is something that we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Unearthing our legacy. More th- you know, Brian Stevenson probably has done more recently than anyone else with the the Basically, work, right? Yeah, the, yeah. but more than uh, almost five thousand people that we can record have been lynched. Most of them were lynched for economic reasons. Right. Now, you would people will tell you black men raped white women. Mm-mm. It was for economic reasons. They were, had too much money, too much land. In, t- in yes. Tulsa, the governor of Oklahoma actually appointed a commission. Didn't have any black people on it to uh, figure out what happened in 1921. Mm-hmm. You know, the Black Wall Street. Right. And the conclusion, one of the conclusions was too many N-words, and it was not Negro. Too many N-words had too much money. Too much money. um, That was the conclusion. Um, And in Tulsa, it's interesting, just the year before they had lynched a white man, and when they lynched a white man, the white newspaper said, if we can lynch a white man, we can lynch a Negro. Mm. I mean, it's just all like an open call for lynching. Um, So, but the first lynching, Ida B. Wells investigated was very interesting. A man named Tommy Moss, who was a dear friend of hers, a postal uh, supervisor, which is about as high as a black man could go in like 1896, uh, 94. He, um, there was a grocery store that owned by a white man that was nasty. They talked ugly to the sisters, talked under people's clothes. They spit and they had alcohol, which was against the law then. The man had so many violations. So Tommy Moss said, we got to start another store. So he started the People's Grocery. Yes. And it was just, it wasn't very far from the other store, right. from the white man's store. So obviously black women and men, but black women especially did most of the shopping. They would prefer to go to Tommy Moss's store than to go to this store where people talked under their clothes and et cetera. Two people got in a fight over marbles, marbles. And the little white boy ran to the white man's store and said, this little black boy took my marbles. So this is something that adults should be able to figure out. Right. No. These white people go to the people's grocery with guns to start some stuff. Over marbles. Over marbles. And this is one of those where if you don't start none, there ain't going to be none. So when they got there, the brothers were ready. And shots were exchanged. Nobody was killed, but people were shot. The next thing you know, um, three black men were lynched. Um, And the white man who owned the grocery store was able to take Tommy Moss's store over for eight cents on the dollar. Eight cents on the dollar. So this is pure economic envy. Yes. 
That's all it was, economic envy. And there's so many other stories like that. Of, the Beach family, where they're finally getting back their, their family's land. land. Exactly. Yes. There, um, there's one, this black man, this was 19, I want to say 21, but I could be wrong. I have all this stuff in notes somewhere. But this brother had over 400 acres of land. Yes. Good land, they called it, which, which was um, worth, at that time, probably about $25,000 which today would be like a couple million. So he, um, uh, the newspapers described him as a a rich Negro, but very arrogant. Um, Basically, he didn't take any tea for the fever. So he went to sell his cotton seed in the main trading post. A man was in front of him. The trading post guy offered the, the man in front of him white about 95 cents per pound or per unit of cotton for the cotton seeds. He offered him 85 cents. He said, no, I want the same amount that you gave the person. The in front person. Of and they went back and forth. And the brother finally said, I'd rather put my seed, put my cotton seed in the damn river than to uh, <laughs> sell it to you. Well, now, cursing at a white person was against the law. Yes, it was. So, but, but he didn't curse at him. He just said, damn river. He cursed river. about it. Right. Yeah, cursed about the cursing situation. was in the, in the sentence. Right. They arrested him. Um, and told him his fine was going to be $15. They thought he was going to go to jail. He reached in his pocket and took the $15 and gave it to him. And um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was there. Already you knew <laughs> yeah. that something was going to happen. And he was lynched. And then yeah. he, they, they had him hanging, uh, his body hanging for days on the street. As an example. As an example. And the two white men who um, organized lynching became the conservators of his estate. And they were able to run the family out of the area. And there's just so many stories like that. There's even, call it economic terrorism exactly. that has existed, which has helped create and maintain this black permanent so, underclass. Exactly. And, 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 and in addition to a level of fear, right. Richard Wright, the author of Black Boy, mm-hmm. wrote about community fear. Mm-hmm. So he said, when a, lynching ha- when a lynching happens, it doesn't have to happen to me or in my town when I hear about it. It, it changes my behavior. Right. And that's how so many black people have learned how to play small, mm-hmm. have learned how to, um, you know, usually, I mean, if you think about the Great Depression, it's very interesting. Usually when we go to present ourselves outside, we do our best. Right. You know, but we don't walk around looking tacky. That's what we've been told. You, you, you always have to present yourself, be twice as good. As exactly. If that really was a measure, but that's what we were told. So you go to, many black people were denied relief during the Depression because they were going to government officials. So, of course, they put on what, their best clothes. Mm-hmm. And the, they, the white folks would look at them and say, you don't need any help. But they did need help. Yeah. They just did not, you know, so all these things work together to give us this, this wealth gap. But, you know, the, the economic terrorism, economic envy is really at the root of the wealth gap. And that's something that people don't talk about very often. The history is one that many would like to deny. But that's the importance of critical race theory, that it goes beyond just teaching about race as this factor to keep people out of places, but you get into economic terrorism. And what does that consist of? You get into the Fair Housing Act. Precisely. And what that meant in 1968 on top of 1910 with Baltimore City being ground zero for racially restrictive housing policies. What does it mean that we're still dealing with economic injustice today? You know, it's really interesting when you look at 
the critical race theory is really about studying law and how law ends up not changing the things that it's intended to change. Like you said, Fair Housing Act. But we go back and also look at the origins of redlining. And we can look at the um, ways that the uh, Federal Housing Administration essentially actively participated in segregation. So when we look at those things, what we have to say is, how did this happen? And that's what critical race theory is about. This is not being taught K through 12. It's no, not this, being, this is uh, law schools. And if you go to an HBCU, you may have a few professors who talk about critical race theory. In a sociology or law class right. or something like History, that. Right. Um, but, you know, white people don't want to hear the truth. No, now, I'm generalizing and signing some white people. I want to hear it. But by and large, the fact that 16 states either have passed mm-hmm. laws or are considering mm-hmm. laws that ban the teaching of critical race theory. Beyond that, ban the teaching of anything that would make somebody uncomfortable. Well, they're banning teaching about Dr. King, Cesar Chavez, Susan B. Anthony. Like, they're going across the board. It may start with CRT, yeah, but, they, but it is they extended. Don't wanna, they nothing don't want, to go against the status quo. And then you get to this town south, that whatever, in Texas, where the people, it, it, it would be funny if it wasn't not real. There are two sides to the Holocaust, yeah, but I'm saying, that's what I'm telling my husband. It starts with critical race theory. Mm-hmm. That's just the beginning. It expands into everything. Teach both sides of the Holocaust. Teach slavery is a good thing. A form of economic empowerment. It's both sides. Texas and there's is no both, and there are no yeah, both sides. No boss. I mean, it's just but, but but this is yeah, but but Texas, Texas is a different country at this point. Because I want to get into Senate Bill Eight. I mean, yeah. what do you mean this attack on women when it comes to body autonomy? I tell people they just want to talk about the abortion. I'm like, no, it's about body autonomy and losing the right to make choices. Exactly. About what happens with your and body. How and dare, how dare these people who have no reproductive ability um, talk about other people's reproductive ability? I mean, how dare these men? You know, it's really, from, from a Marxian perspective, it's about controlling the means of production. Yes, that's the, and, 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 and essentially ensuring that you have a captive workforce that's prepared to be low wage. Yes. Because if you're looking at many of these women, not all, uh, upper middle class women have abortions too. But if you look at women who go to get an abortion for economic reasons, yes. you have four kids and you don't want a fifth. Right. And you can't afford a fifth. Um, your marriage is crumbling and, you know, you... You can't support any more children. Um, but if you have those children, see, these people are pro-life until the baby comes. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, no, no one is pro-support of children right, when you is. come to places like Texas. What, what I think is fascinating about getting into this notion of body autonomy and who has ultimate control over what happens to women, it's happening in the same state where people are saying, you can't make me wear a mask, you can't make <laughs> me take a vaccine, that you, you want control, but yet you don't want to give up control. Precisely. No, it's it. Texas is. I don't. I don't understand what's going on. Well, I do understand what's going on. First of all, Texas could turn blue if the gerrymandering would stop. Come on, let me. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> they, they they do not want to give up Texas. That no, would they be a really, huge move. And, and, and you know what's interesting? However, just footnote it is when you look at the demographic shifts, people assume that there's this great black brown coalition. There mm-hmm. isn't. There isn't. Um, there are a lot of folks who vote, um, no, a lot of brown folks vote Republican. Yes. And a lot of what, there's an author, I, I should have his book with me, but I don't. But anyway, there's an author who's written about the demographic shifts, and he's, he's basically, through surveys, shows that when a person of color, black, brown, especially, 
marries a white person, their children are more likely to identify white yes. than to identify yes. of color. Now, that's less true for black people married to white people, but that's just because black is immutable. Right. You know, right. you can't, you know. Right. This idea of being a part, but then I think that also lines up with the census, that if you are someone who's Latinx, mm-hmm. when you go to check the box, you're not checking Latinx as a race. You're checking white of Hispanic origin. Yes. There's this kind of really blurred so line. So kind of having it both about, ways. Yeah, yeah, having it both ways of what it means to be white until you're not white passing. Right. Then you're firmly within the Latinx community. Exactly. Which is really a lot of conflict and tension there that they're working through. So it's not a black-brown coalition across the board, particularly but, in places like Texas and Florida. Yeah, no, there's, in some places there is. Mm-hmm. And some there is. And it's also often very tenuous. If you look at, at Los Angeles, for example, we still have some black political power. Maxine Waters, uh, powerful. you know, um, Karen Bass, who is running for mayor, which is very exciting. Of course, I'm like, well, how come a sister has to be the cleanup woman? But uh, Every single time. And they want to Stacey Abrams. Come and clean it up. Get Michelle Obama. Come, come and, and clean, clean it, it up. up. Yeah. But, you know, she, um, she one of the things that has impelled her, because I, I really regret that she is giving up a very powerful congressional seat. Yeah. But at the same time, the homeless situation, as she says, is crippling. 40,000 homeless people. Black people, our population in L.A. has dropped um, precipitously. So we might be, I'm, if, I, if it's 10%, I'm being generous. But we're 40% of the homeless. I want to ask you, because I know we don't have much time left. I wanted to have you speak about this notion of time poverty and mm. how time disproportionately mm. impacts black women. Because coming out of COVID, there was a sense that we had a lot of time, except when you take a look at the data, I tell people that being able to stay home mm-hmm. was a mark of being middle class. Absolutely. For people who were not, and that for us, for black folks, that was one out of every three black families. You had to get up and go to work during COVID. Tell me about it. You yeah. know, uh, the uh, CL and CNA, Certified Nursing Assistant. Yes. 20% of those are black women and 20% are Latinx women. Those are the people who are keeping people alive. And they had and, to get up and go to work. And they had to go. And, and nobody thought about what happened to their children, especially yeah. if they were single moms, and many of them were. Um, so the top, you, you're on to something, the time poverty piece here. I wrote about this. I get, see, this is how I know I'm old. Because <laughs> so much, old work you've done this come back around well, again. So, some things just don't change. I mean, they yes. don't change. So I remember writing about the, the, the joys of Piddlin. Yes. Because I had gone to, so I had gone to some white people retreat. Um, I just got up there to, to speak about some economic thing. And uh, they gave me a week. I mean, they didn't pay me, but they gave me a week to hang out at this place. <laughs> and it was cool. And all you did is piddle. People drove, rode their little bikes around and did this. And, and you know, got into these great conversations at the fireplace and da-da-da. And I said, wouldn't it be nice if black people could do this? All uh, the time. Yeah, so, you know, and, and, but when I looked into the cost, the thing cost their thousands for the week. I mean, they gave some... To piddle. To piddle. Just a, and, you know, it was a renewal. But we don't get to renew. No. We don't get to refresh. And if you if your salary is down, you know, even if you're at if you're at 15 an hour, you're making 30 grand a year. So if you have any children, you need a partner. You need somebody else bringing money in there. And then the 30 grand a year at 15 is if you're working full time, full year. Mm -hmm. And um, often, you know, uh, one of the big box stores that will remain nameless to keep you all out of jail is uh, they would very careful, almost surgically. If you work 30 hours, you got benefits. So they'd have you at 26 so you or 27. Yes. I had a, was on a call with uh, some poor people who, they, they were doing a sort of a t- radio thing 
radio press conference. And um, this couple got on, and they both worked at this big box store that begins with W. Um, <laughs> and you don't have us in jail. <laughs> she, um, she was a floor supervisor. He was a delivery supervisor. Neither of them had thirty hours, so they had so they so they had no not they had no benefits, and they talked about having to um, decide which child got new shoes and which one had to pass them down. And they're both working full time. Yeah. One of the things that I tell people that if you go back and we're going to study what happened during COVID for years to come, I said, but you're talking about people who were invisible labor. I said, do you really talk to the person who bags the groceries? Have you really looked at the Hello. person? Who's, have you ever thought about the people that do all these? No, they were invisible. But and then during COVID, they were told they were essential. That you should sudden, be willing to die all of a to bag sudden they groceries, were essential. which well, meant they were dispendable, right? They're, exactly. Like but, so back, but back to this call, because this is a, a point. This couple, they had, I didn't, couldn't tell what they were, you know, racially. Sometimes you can tell when it's a black person. I couldn't tell. And after they told their tales of woe, and the woman said, and it's just not fair because we're white. Oh. In other words, you know, the only people who are supposed to have economic distress be better for are us. black people. Um, so, this is, and so this is part of the problem. White, poor white people do not identify with poor black people. And when they do and if they do, then you get the kind of social change you want. But what they have that we don't have is whiteness. And while they cannot eat their whiteness... They get a lot of non-pecuniary satisfaction mm -hmm. from their whiteness. And they can sleep at night Yes, in ways that black people cannot. Now, I know I want to bring this full circle in the last little, about two minutes left. So I have two final questions for you. Okay. Um, so, and both of them just want to tap into your, your, your long eye of history. What you just said about this idea that poor white folks don't actually associate or see themselves on the same level as poor black folks because of whiteness, it takes me back to Dr. King. Like, wasn't that the heart of the poor people's campaign yes, saying get beyond race? That what we really need to talk about in this country is this class gap. We, well, we need to talk about both, but class is so important. When we look at it, and, you know, that's why Reverend William Barber is so yes, important. I mean, he is the incarnation in so many ways of Dr. King because he, he really has worked very hard to put together a multiracial yes. um, coalition. He has white folks who, who swear by him mm -hmm. because he really does speak to what is poverty, what is necessary, how do we fix this. Mm -hmm. um, so he, I, I, you know, I have enormous respect and admiration for him. And just pray for him every day, really, because the brother's health is precarious, yes. and um, yes, and is. and and he doesn't know how to tell people no, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So he will be here and go there and go here and go there. You know, Reverend Jackson is another one. Yes, I mean, right. Reverend Jackson has been ill. I chair his Push Excel, which is the education arm, yes. and. When Rev was in the hospital, he's talking about let's have a press conference. When I get out of the hospital, I'm like, dude, you need to sit your, you know what, down. And but of course he had one, and it, and of course what what Jackie, his wife, said to me once while well, I was fussing at him, and she said, if someone told you that you have Parkinson's and you only had so many years to live, what would you do? She said, would you sit at home reading a book? No, you would speak. I said, no, I said, I'd do what out. I could as long as I could. She said, well, that's what he's doing. Well, so, you know, oh. but, but, but um, and I adore him. I think, I think the world of him. We, um, so the poverty piece is a piece that we really have to talk a lot more about and the class piece. And poor working class white people and working class black people have more in common than they have different. And I that, have one final question because they're giving me the rap signal. My last question for you, uh, just to wrap up. <laughs> and she's rapping, too. And she is rapping. <laughs> but just to, to finish off, that you know, when you look back, you know, 
now, if you go 50 years from this point, mm-hmm. how do you want to be remembered? What do you think is the greatest piece of your legacy you want people to talk about when they mention Dr. Julianne Malvo 50 years or so from now? Just that I was a fighter. Mm-hmm. Whether I was a, 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 I won't say a street fighter, but I've, I fought for us, for racial economic justice, um, and didn't back down from any kind of fight. <laughs> I like that. Dr. Julianne Malvo, an economist, an author, social and political commentator, a businesswoman. She served as the 15th president of Bennett College in Greensboro, North Carolina. She's currently the dean of the New College of Ethnic Studies at California State University in Los Angeles. She's a Delta and she's one of my sheroes. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure and a dream of mine to speak with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Continued success to you. Thank you, folks. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to open up the phone lines. We want to talk about the state of black America with you when we return. Jones for setting up that interview. We spoke with Dr. Malvo about time poverty, and I want to open up the phone lines to you. 68% of black women are responsible for being the primary source of income for their households. 68%. So this notion of time poverty is one that is disproportionately impacting black women because we are the ones who are primarily responsible for bringing in the money, bringing in the bacon, making sure that our family has what they need. We don't have leisure time. We're dealing with time poverty. Are you money rich and time poor. Now, that expression is around this idea that around people who have a high disposable income, but you have very little leisure time. That's what it means to be money rich and time poor. Time poverty goes in a different direction. And they're saying that black women are dealing with time poverty. We do not have enough time for rest, for leisure, after taking into account the time we spend working, whether it's on the labor market or it's at the kitchen table, that black women are constantly working. We work when we get our kids up, that we're the ones responsible for getting them up, making sure they're dressed, getting them to school. We go into the office and we work there, and then we come home, making sure our our children have done their homework, making sure dinner is served, making sure the dishes are washed and clothes are washed and folded. Black women right now are the ones who are being disproportionately impacted when it comes to time poverty. Now, when we talk about 
lifetime poverty. I think it's important for us to talk about all the different types of poverty because for black women, we experience poverty across the board this state where there's scarcity, a lack of certain commodities that are required really to live a better life. Poverty is multifaceted, right? So it's inclusive of social, economic, and political elements. It's not just about not having enough money. Poverty is multifaceted. It covers a number of areas. The word poverty actually in its essence just means poor. Like that's exactly what it means to live in an impoverished condition. If you take a look at the fact that poverty is multifaceted, it's multidimensional, that you have issues like the region, uh, the era, the geographical condition that you have to take into account. One thing that they found that holds true when it comes to being black, and being a woman, we cross a number of the boundaries that separate the types of poverty. According to a 2017 National Equity Atlas study, it found that 21% of black female-led households did not have access to a car. And as a result, you end up with longer commute times, which means you have very little time to even accomplish your daily tasks. So you have households where black women are the ones who are primarily responsible for bringing home the bacon. We don't have enough time to take care of ourselves, and we actually don't have enough time to take care of our own children. So we are pushing them out so that we can get on the road to where we have to go. Poverty, as we break them down, the types of poverty, I want to begin with absolute poverty. And absolute poverty is known as extreme poverty or abject poverty. And so when you're dealing with absolute poverty, scarcity of basic food, clean water, health, shelter, education, and information— When you are part of a group where you talk about absolute poverty, you also have people dying from preventable diseases, children dying from malaria and cholera and water contamination. Like We don't see a lot of absolute poverty in America, although it does exist in some of our most economically challenged communities. This notion of absolute poverty was actually introduced uh, in 1990 when they were talking about a dollar a day. Like, what does it mean to be impoverished? And so the World Bank says that we have to talk about absolute poverty falls underneath that standard. The World Bank said, well, really the standard is a dollar and 90 cents a day. If you live below a dollar and 90 cents a day, then you live in absolute poverty. Think about that, a dollar and 90 cents a day. A day. You have relative poverty. Relative poverty is defined from the social perspective that the living standard that you have compared to the economic standards of population living in your surroundings. So it's a measure of income inequality. So, for example, a family can be considered impoverished or poor 
if it cannot afford vacations or they can't buy Chris, uh, presents for children at Christmas or they can't send their young child to the university. Relative poverty is measured as the percentage of the population with income less than some fixed portion of median income. So you may have some economic challenges, but your economic challenges are only enhanced in comparison to the community or city in which you find yourself. So you might be in Baltimore, and you may be living in this type of situational poverty. It's relative poverty. But you take the income that you have here in Baltimore City, and you go to somewhere down in, in Memphis, somewhere in Mississippi, where the cost of living is much lower, and you're actually as part of a different class, even though you're making the same amount of money. That is relative poverty. And so we look at the communities where black women, the 68% of black women who are bringing home the major income in their households, where they're located, and relative poverty begins to matter. Then you're making decisions about which child can get new shoes and whether or not your child can go to college. Not if they want to go, whether or not you can afford to send them or support them. Situational poverty is temporary. So it happens after an environmental disaster uh, job loss, severe health problems, that with situational poverty, what happens, and this is where a lot of black folks find themselves, you're living from paycheck to paycheck. So when something happens, when somebody passes, when you lose your job, when you get sick, when there's a major uh, disaster, an environmental disaster, the entire floor falls out underneath is situational poverty. And that we, as black folks, we must get beyond living from paycheck to paycheck. And I understand that is not a choice that we're consciously making. Nobody wants to live paycheck to paycheck. So, so what do we do about it? Dr. Malvo said that part of the work that needs to be done in order to close that wage pay gap is to have more transparency in income. That's why unions are so important, to bring about a spirit of transparency. So if you're sitting beside me, and I'm a black woman, and I'm making $15,000 a year for the same job that you're doing, and you're a white man, and you're making $25,000 a year, transparency, the union is going to make sure that I can fight against that and I can get my income raised to a point where I don't have to be in this moment of situational poverty, but I actually can begin to afford some of the extras. Getting life insurance, saving up to buy a house, getting a car so I can move around and have a little bit more flexibility in my movement. Think about where my children are going to school. I can also think about, hear me out, and, I, and parents whose children play sports, this is a big deal. Being able to have money to support your child playing sports means that you don't have situational poverty because sports are expensive. I'm not talking about your kid going down to the basketball court at the corner block, right, and just kind of doing their thing. I'm saying if you have if you've decided that little Joaquin might be the next LeBron, then that means that you are willing 
to sacrifice extra money coming into the household so that little Joachim can have what he needs, the tennis shoes, join the club, you know, AAU, being able to travel. Like, it's expensive now putting your child in sports. I think a lot about this notion of situational poverty and the floor being taken out underneath you because I think it's gotten more stacked against us. I was thinking when I saw the the whole uh, little piece here, the press release for the new film, King Richard with Will Smith, about, you know, the, the Richard, the father of Serena and Venus Williams. And I'm saying, well, today, could a father do what he did? Could he take you know, his daughters down to the tennis court at the end of the block and, you know, pick the balls up from the places where he walked through and, you know, get, get the gang members to protect his daughters while they're playing? Could we do that? I think it's much more difficult today. I think that if your child is playing sports today, it is a major commitment, particularly if you've decided that you want to support your child's sports career all the way through, that the hope is that they'll get some type of scholarship for college. Well, depending upon that sport, that, that may or may not happen. There's some sports that don't give scholarships at all. Situational poverty is saying, okay, I have enough to support this. Another form of poverty is generational poverty. And this is poverty that's handed over from individual and families from one generation to the next. Let me tell you what that looks like. And families that are dealing with at least two generations of poverty, two generations, that's mom and that's daughter, two generations born in poverty, families who are living in this type of poverty cycle are not equipped with the tools to move out of the situation. How do you move out of of poverty. How do you save enough to move to another neighborhood? It happens, right? There's situations where it happens. Maybe the child does become the next LeBron. Maybe the child does go on and, you know, get their PhD or get their master's or get a, a good paying job to, you know, get out of the community. It happens. It's very difficult and very challenging. A couple of the ones. Urban poverty. Urban poverty happens in metropolitan areas with populations over 50,000. When you're dealing with urban poverty, you have limited access to health and education. You have inadequate housing and services. You have violent and unhealthy environments being built up around you because of overcrowding, and you have little or no social protection mechanisms. Urban, you, you take urban poverty and you couple that with situational poverty and then you layer generational poverty on top of that, you end up being in a situation you can't get out of. Sharon Randolph says, you know what? You sacrifice money and a lot of personal time for your child to play sports. Time many of us do not have. Time poverty, something that black women are dealing with. When we come back from the break, the phone lines are open to you. I want to hear from you what you think we can do. How can we help assist Lean in, be a support system for black women. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. 